This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. My home state of Minnesota has always taken pride in its schools. In 2015, the average math performance of Minnesota students ranked second among all 50 states. Only Massachusetts showed a higher level of performance. But lately, Minnesota has been struggling. Its citizens are divided, its self-confidence shaken, and a lot of the problems seem centered in Minneapolis, the biggest city in Minnesota. It was there that George Floyd was murdered. It was there that Lake Street businesses, and I knew Lake Street very well. My, my brother lived just right off Lake Street. Lake Street businesses were destroyed by violence. Campaigns to defund the police gathered steam. And it's in Minneapolis that uh, teachers went on strike as the COVID pandemic was finally beginning to pass. Schools in Minneapolis were closed for still another three weeks uh, and, and didn't open until the end of March when a uh, teacher signed a contract. Well, Beth Hawkins is a resident of Minneapolis and a reporter for the 74 and many other journalistic outlets. She's been tracking the education scene in the Twin Cities for many years and I'm pleased to have Beth, and of course she's been reporting across the country as well, I, I have to add. And I'm very pleased to have Beth with me on the Education Exchange uh, today. So Beth, thank you for joining me. It's always a pleasure, Paul. Well, Beth, let's start with the big picture. I just saw in the Digest of Education Statistics that in 1997, Minneapolis schools had an enrollment of nearly 50,000 students. But today, enrollment has fallen to 28,000. Maybe it's going down to 26,000. Next year, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's nearly a 50% decline. Um, so is this really true? Where have all the students gone? What, what's the story? You know, it is true. Um, a lot of that enrollment decline took place in, in the aughts, the years after 2000, when uh, fully half the students of color on the north side of the city, which is the more impoverished one, left for charter schools and um, open enrollment between districts. They left for suburban districts. But since the start of the pandemic, enrollment has down 12%. Um, so we went into COVID with possibly 32,000 students. This year is at 28,000. Um, Minneapolis saw an unprecedented mid-year drop of more than 750 students, um, possibly because in addition to the, the three-week strike closure that you noted, there were closures for Omicron uh, and, and other issues. And um, it's projected to fall to 26,000 next year. And there are a couple of models under which there might be a modest enrollment rebound, but, but nothing approaching the enrollment that would be needed for solvency. And to your question about where the students are going, uh, I think that local officials are still trying to figure that out. In the aughts, they went to a, a mushrooming charter sector, but that is not the case right now. Right now, they appear to be moving out of the city in part because of um, unrest and crime in the wake of George, the George Floyd riots that you mentioned. Um, they're moving to exurbs and small communities. Wealthier students are moving to private schools and um, open enrollment in our suburban neighbors is up sharply. 
So Minneapolis is not supposed to be a Rust Belt city. It's supposed to be innovative, high tech, responsive, on the ball. It's got great civic institutions, the Walker Art Museum, uh, the University of Minnesota, the Vikings. <laughs> What's happening to, to Minneapolis? You know, it's interesting that you bring that up because I, sitting here in Minneapolis, I feel like part of the issue, you know, in addition to the issues that confront urban school districts, large school districts all over the country in terms of falling enrollment, is our beliefs about ourselves. I mean, we still very much believe that we're living the Minnesota miracle and that um, our performance is higher, our funding is higher, um, things that are true in some instances and not true in others. Um, I, I, there's just a reluctance here to look at some of the harsher realities that we tend to believe um, should apply to people in those places, you know, big cities on the coast or um, states that we tend to think of as less education oriented. So as enrollment has fallen, uh, Minneapolis leadership has continue to push for increased state funding and continue to push district staff to find a marketing plan that will bring the kids back. Um, and we have, you probably, uh, he probably was the state demographer at some point in your time. We have a fabulous state demographer, Tom Melcher. Um, and he and the district financial staff continue to say, you know, it's, it's not just competition, it's it's the, uh, the inverse of a baby boom. People are having fewer kids and they are, the city is less affordable in a lot of ways for middle-class families. Well, yes, it could be a lot like Boston, which is you know, too far from where I live now. And um, they are uh, losing students for very much the same reasons that uh, Minneapolis is. And they're becoming a city that looks more like it's for the elderly and for the 20 year olds. And, and, and so the families are leaving and they're, and they're either very young or very old. The University of Minnesota must be keeping a lot of that youth uh, population uh, nearby. So uh, is that sort of what's happening in Minneapolis? I would, I would say that that's true. And I would say that the affordability issues for the middle class are um, more recent than some of the other phenomena. Uh, you know, we of course had the first, the nation's first chartering law and the nation's first open enrollment law. And those drains have been steady since about 1990. Um, that's been a slow trickle of kids moving elsewhere. Uh, and we had at one point a court ordered desegregation plan that where the state paid to bus uh, children from um, impoverished census tracts in Minneapolis to suburban districts that agreed to take them. Um, but what is new in the last four or five years is this, you know, combination of skyrocketing housing prices, a lack of rental housing, um, and then in the last two and a half years, crime. And th those are new things to Minnesota. I mean, I live here still because it is a very prosperous place. It's an easy place to be prosperous. Um, and has always had a very high quality of life. And our schools um, have always been a linchpin of that. And our, we've been very lucky to have a civic and corporate sector that has recognized that and has pushed for investments that more conservative places would be reluctant to make. Um, but I, th I think that the center has fallen out of that grand bargain. 
So what's the cause of the teacher strike? And uh, what was it that really, was it the fact that their salaries were low? You're saying Minnesota has always believed in education. So uh, are the Minneapolis teachers unreasonable in their requests or were their salaries really beginning to hurt? Uh, or were they concerned about other issues such as uh, the possibility they'd be laid off in this uh, period of declining enrollment? So the um, average Minneapolis teacher salary pre-strike was somewhere in the high 80,000s. I, th- I want to say 86, but don't quote me precisely on that. Um, and of course, you know, that comes with benefits that are district paid. It comes with a host of things. It comes with a nine or 10 month school year. It's pretty um, much free, free medical services, right? It is, it is. I mean, it, you know, it's, it's arguably not the most poorly paid job. And so I think, and I'm, I'm sure you've seen this in lots of communities around the country, the unions lately have campaigned on platforms of, of wanting to deliver the schools that students deserve. So this year, um, they set upon a, a handful of things that really captured the community's attention. And the strike had widespread support for the first two of the three weeks. Um, one of the things that they campaigned on was increasing pay for classroom assistants, which had hovered in the mid 20s, like I think 26,000 was the average pay. Was that full-time work or half-time work? You know, it's more like, it's like 32 hours a week, 35 hours a week. So one of the things they campaigned for was to make it full-time um, and to increase the hourly wage. So that really galvanized the community. People really understood that a very large portion, I think it's 1,500 people are employed in that category and that you know, they're not making a living wage while providing crucial services to children. But how crucial are they? You know, all the studies that I have seen have shown that teacher aides don't really show up as uh, relevant to student performance. If you, get a, if you have smaller class sizes, yes, you get better student performance. If you have a teacher's aid instead of class size reduction, no benefit. I think absolutely a fair point. Uh, and the, and I uh, one of the things that I think has been obscured in in the wake of the strike is a much larger conversation about how the district is staffed. Um, you know, principals right now are trying to figure out how to balance their budgets, and we can delve into this more in a minute if you want. Um, but they now must accommodate more classroom aid hours to make up new minimum thresholds of pay than they need. So next year, they must provide an additional five hours a week for each aide in their buildings. And they have to staff it at a particular level. So they're having a very hard time figuring out how to keep the teachers and support staff that they actually want in the face of the rising costs of the people they're now contractually obligated to carry. So do, do the principals control their local school budget? Is, is this a very decentralized uh administrative structure where principals decide how to spend the money? So it's kind of cruel rhetoric here. Um, You know, they call it site-based budgeting, but doesn't everybody. But when when they hand a principal their budget, they say, okay, um, please go balance this budget, but within the following confines. You must 
um, provide the additional hours for a set number of aides. You must um, adhere to a district policy of predictable staffing, which says that your building must contain a full complement of librarians, nurses, um, other folks who we've decided that each school should have regardless of whether or not it's enrollment would support a budget that would have that person. Uh, the new contract obliges schools to carry additional psychologists, social workers, and other support staff, because one of the things that the union campaigned on during the strike was the mental health crisis among students. Um, and lost on the general public is how little social workers and school psychologists do to support student mental health and how much they do to support um, continued paperwork for special education services, et cetera. Um, and they must now also, you know, pay more for the staff that they have. So we have lots of principals in a position of trying to figure out how to retain enough core staff to teach to the standards, to teach the complement of things that we as a state of decided children should know um, while adhering to rules about staff they must carry. I talked to a principal um, in the preparation of a recent story who had, had fabulous outcomes with two social workers in her building and was looking at laying one of them off uh, because she's now required to have a psychologist. Well, yeah, those rules are amazing the way they can uh, change uh, things uh, for people who are supposedly in charge. And you got to feel sorry for those uh, for those principals that uh, have to somehow make it work. And it gets even worse when the school gets smaller in size. And isn't that what's happening? Everybody's losing enrollment at their school. Yeah, so, so to circle back to the start of our conversation, um, when I started writing about schools, there were 50,000 students in the district. The district is still set up to accommodate 43,000. Um, and of course, enrolls 28 and- So when you say set up, you mean there's enough schools Yep. And, and enough seats in those schools so that yep. if, if all of a sudden you got 10,000, 13,000 more students, you could easily accommodate them within the existing number of buildings that are being operated. And in fact, we are still retaining staff that, that would go a long ways toward accommodating those, those students. There, there would have to be some hiring, but not as much as you would suspect. Um, we have at least 20 schools that enroll fewer than 300 students and a number that enroll fewer than 200. And principals have told me that in order to afford the academic interventionists that they really need for struggling kids, they need at least 350 and preferably more than 400. Um, this community has been unwilling to have the conversation about closing schools or consolidating them. And um, last fall, before the strike was on the horizon, chose to spend 75 million of its 159 million in the third round of ESSER funds. And boy, that was a jargon-laden sentence. Uh, <laughs> but fully half. Yeah, that's the way it is. When you, you say talk half. about federal really? money, it's just a bunch of jargon, yes. Yeah. So they, wanted, they, they chose to spend half of their main trench of ESSER funding on what they called programmatic stability which meant basically keeping those jobs in the hope that there would be some sort of enrollment rebound. Well, why don't they just close some schools? There must be some schools that are, are doing very poorly 
yep. the case for keeping them going is got to be very weak. And, and you could just consolidate with uh, the students going to other nearby schools. Paul, you don't live here anymore, do you? <laughs> uh, there is no political will here for that conversation. Um, we, we, I don't include myself in this, we except as a broader community, we have focused on asking the state to come up with larger and larger amounts of money. Um, there is at least one funding wrinkle that is legitimately unfair, but, but I think that you know, we're receiving, if you count all of the categorical aid, $20,000 a student or more. Um, From the state and federal government? Yes, yes. Is this and, temporary with the, all this federal money coming in or can you expect that out into the future? Yeah, no, that, that is, I mean, we, we are, we are flush compared to some states and yet compared to what we would like to spend to continue to operate the system of very small schools, um, we're very poor. And I think that that reckoning is something that district financial staff have brought up um, until they're hoarse, but they're sort of continually dismissed by the drumbeat of um, find a way to entice the kids back. So, the, the contract settlement in it, with the, all of these subsidies to these small schools, with our decision not to go ahead and have a conversation about closing uh, at least a dozen, if not 20, has come out to 80% of our ESSER funds. So there's 20, the 20% that Congress said must go uh, to services directly to students is preserved. Um, but but every nickel that's not statutorily in that bucket is being spent on subsidizing small schools, um, paying one-time bonuses to staff, and and keeping staving off the fiscal cliff. The fiscal cliff before S the ESSER money arrived was supposed to hit in 24. Um, the plan last fall would have pushed that out to 27 and the costs of the new contract have pushed it back to 24 again. So we're a year and a half out from um, what Minnesotans call statutory operating debt. Um, and, and if you just wanna add a, like a bitter little irony, um, we're probably nine months away from another negotiation for a new contract. This contract lapses very soon. So uh, it, it's going to be good for the coming school year, but not much beyond that. And then they'll yeah. go around again. Now, actually, the teachers only got a 2% salary increase, though. So um, did the board win then in the negotiations with the teachers? So the teachers were asking for a huge increase, but they settled for 2%. Um, you know, I think that that when the teachers realized after the dust had cleared and the you know champagne corks had gone into the dustbin, um, when they realized that that was the raise and that it's not, that they're gonna have to go back to the table so quickly, there was tremendous unhappiness. Um, so they did not get a huge raise, you're right. They did get large bonuses. And if you if you break what was that four thousand? And I actually liked this bonus idea. I actually thought that was something good about the contract because it really targeted the money disproportionately to the beginning teachers who aren't so well paid, and that's where you really want to have 
larger salaries. You don't need larger salaries for teachers who've been there for a while because they've got so many benefits and so many uh, privileges already. They're not going to leave and, and really they're overcompensated. So, but you do want to pay more money coming in at the bottom and the bonus system is a way to do that. So is that, um, is that one of the good things about the contract? I mean, people, the experts um, have been counseling since the start of the pandemic and in the wake of the Great Recession uh, some time ago that one-time expenditures are better than expenditures that create tails. So sure, absolutely. And I, I think it's pretty hard to argue that the $6,000 that the classroom aides are each in line for is um, not going to be welcome in those household budgets. And you are right that it's $4,000 per licensed teacher. Um, that comes to 53.5 million. So, you know, if you're going to reward staff, that was a, that was a win on the part of the district. I think that you're right. Um, I think a, a question, however, that sits in my mind is what are we going to do about this year? Minnesota and Minneapolis did not in fact have the annual release of the state accountability numbers. I mean, you know, usually there's a press release and, um, you know, they draw your attention to one or two indicators that are favorable and don't pay very much attention to the ones that aren't. But um, this year there was no release at all. And when we look at the numbers, some of our proficiency numbers are in the single digits. Um, and I know- How do you know that if they didn't release the data? Well, the data is up on the state database, but there was no announcement made when it was loaded and when it became public. Um, you well, know. isn't the press covering that? Don't they look at the database and cover the story anyhow? Should we talk about other shrinking demographics, Paul? Um, yeah. You mean so nobody's <laughs> reading the newspaper? Nobody, the re, the Minneapolis Star and Tribune isn't hiring reporters anymore? So for, mu for much of the time that... COVID has uh, plagued people and caused chaos in schools. The Twin Cities had two, maybe two education reporters at our marquee newspaper, um, two at the competitor in St. Paul, one at Minnesota Public Radio. Um, so I don't, you know, there are basic questions about academics and equity that are going unprobed and that I think the general public has lost sight of. Um, I mean, one of the things that frustrates me both as a resident, as a former Minneapolis public schools parent, um, and as a reporter is, okay, so we've, we've done something for teachers. We've recognized that this has been a horrible experience for them, um, that you know, they also are living with, with churn and hardship um, and trying to teach with their own children in the room. But we don't have a we don't have a plan for the learning losses of the pandemic. We haven't outlined them. We haven't acknowledged them. Um, if you if you looked at the thirty two million dollars that's left in the budget for supports for individual for for students, um, you know there's no large scale high dosage tutoring, for instance, like we, we've just seen in Tennessee. Um, there's no- Well, why couldn't they use the teacher's aides for that purpose? I mean, that would seem to me to be the exact 
reason to have teacher aides is so that they could be tutoring students. I don't disagree with you. Um, I, I think that our, I think that our collective heads are in the sand here. I think that we, we do believe that we're accepted. It would, it would just horrify most Minnesota residents to hear that Tennessee children um, bounced back in literacy and Minnesota children did not. They would have a very hard time believing that because, you know, we tend to think of uh, Southern states as particularly backwards and, and much less enlightened in, in K-12 education than we are. Well, that once was the case, but by the you know, data showing that the South is catching up uh, yep. to the rest of the country uh, steadily and uh, over a sustained period of time. Now, so I want to ask you about the school board. The school board, five seats are coming up this fall. I think I read in one of your stories. Does this provide an opportunity for bringing in some new political leadership? You say that there's a political, lacking a political will, but why can't the political will be changed through some kind of an effort to take a look at the seriousness of these problems and do something about them. I think that there are some folks um, trying to recruit candidates, uh, trying to recruit candidates who may not be the usual suspects. Um, I think there is an awareness that five, five seats is a board majority and that that could make a meaningful difference the um, union traditionally controls the local Democratic Farmer Labor Party endorsing process. And they, a few weeks ago, elected a slate and endorsed a slate. So there is also the likelihood that a union endorsed slate will gain control of the board, um, which, I mean, we've, we saw that happen in St. Paul a few years ago. We had a union endorsed slate take over the board, discover that in fact, the coffers were empty um, and seem fairly shocked. I, th I think beyond that, you know, the, the strike and COVID have led to the loss of leadership on other levels, associate superintendents, um, folks who understand the demographics, the research and accountability office, those places have been hollowed out. And much as people talk about making cuts to bloated administrations and holding schools harmless when there's a deficit. Um, those people are crucial for children's success. I, I personally wonder whether in a, in a one party town, and I, I'm not, I don't care which party it is, there's gonna be much disruption of the status quo. I, I fantasize about um, something more radical about a you know, portfolio strategy or um, some kind of, you can't do nothing. You know? Perhaps we observe local control and give you some options, but you can't do nothing year after year. Well, something is happening year after year. And I think you told me that when you said that more and more people are moving to the suburbs or they're sending their children to the suburbs is this inter-district choice program plus charter schools, although you say charter school enrollments are not growing. I, I assume they put a limit on expanding charter schools. Is that what's happened in Minnesota? Why, why aren't charter schools growing? They're not growing because there was an overcapacity problem. Uh, a number of them opened um, 
we got some char- some much stronger charter school accountability laws because they would open and never close. Um, and now we are operating a leaner sector simply because, I mean, the, the math is the same for the charter schools. They can't operate without, you know, a critical mass of students either. So I think that those schools are not growing um, in the pandemic because they have tended to follow the district's lead in terms of opening and closing. Um, and I And because the folks who have decamped have decamped, I think, for systems that they perceive as smaller and safer. And, you know, we could debate whether that's reality, but I, th- I think that suburbs and particularly exurbs are perceived as smaller and safer right now. So people are, are, are really moving through the suburbs. Is this all bad? I mean, you know, we've been saying we should have more integrated schooling. We, we've been trying to get um, Busing across uh, school district lines is should is this really as bad a story as we're making it out to be in this conversation? Shouldn't we be happy that students are leaving a failed system and going elsewhere? And it's difficult for the system, but maybe for lots of students, they're getting a better experience. Well, you're not going to get very much argument for me. I mean, as a as a parent, I have exercised school choice. Um, you know, both with my real estate dollars and uh, when the conventional system failed one of my kids who has a disability uh, with my ability to pull them from one system and, and enroll them in another. So I, I think that, you know, that is something that, that we absolutely believe in here is a, a parent's right to, to choose the placement that's most appropriate for their child. What I don't think we've, we've grappled with, well, here's an anecdote for you. Um, I did a segment on a public affairs show here um, a few weeks back after the strike. And the host asked me if it was time to step away from per pupil funding because- uh, There aren't enough pupils. Because that would, that, that would shift money from an, an ailing large district to a flourishing small district. And it seems, you know, if you're thinking about it from the perspective of the person who's trying to balance the budgets in the ailing large district, it's a natural question, but are we gonna pay for those students twice? Are we gonna pay for them no matter where they pop up? Um, And and I think, you know, a larger question for me is whether you think the state legislature is giving those large districts enough money or not, how long will the state legislature come to your aid when you have 20 under-enrolled schools and have shown no, no stomach for the conversation about um, what our friends at the Center on Reinventing Public Education would say is, you know, adjust to the reality that you're gonna serve fewer students and work as hard as you can to serve them really well. Well, so you're sort of pessimistic about where we're going what do you think is going to happen when we reach this fiscal cliff? The way the law works in this state, you go into statutory operating debt, which means that you must submit your budget to state officials every year, and they go through it and look for waste, fat, uh, potential savings. But in fact, what happens is your bond rating falls. Um, if you can't raise a levy, and I believe we're at our maximum levy here, you just kind of cycle. 
for years and years and years until there's some kind of demographic or financial miracle that gets you out of statutory operating debt. And at some point the state penalizes you financially. So I don't think that's a very effective remedy. Um, and none of the superintendents I've ever talked to who've been in statutory operating debt think that it's a very effective remedy. And I don't think our policymakers do either. Um, I would ask whether, you know, sometimes bankruptcy uh, or receivership can be a boon. That's a horrible thing to say, but um, the city of Detroit went through a bankruptcy that was a very constructive process. Um, and New Detroit, how, how New Detroit looks has its, its cultural critics, uh, but it's a much more stable city. Um, I think there are probably school district analogs. You know, New Orleans is maybe not the best example because we don't want a, a natural disaster to take out 80% of our buildings and decimate our population. But sometimes having, um, being forced to hit the reset button is, is not a bad thing. Well, all of this is possible and it's possible in more places than just Minneapolis. I think what you tell me about Minneapolis may be something that can be said about cities across the country as we emerge from this uh, period of time in which uh, a lot of changes are occurring uh, beneath the scene, beneath the level of uh, what's apparent on the surface, but which uh, very shortly is going to burst upon us in a very dramatic way. So thank you very much, Beth, for sharing this uh, with our audience on the education exchange. Well, Paul, you have to promise to come visit. That's the price. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to do that. And yes, I will do that. So thank you, Beth. Thank you. Take care. I have been speaking with Beth Hawkins a resident of Minneapolis and an education reporter for the 74. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me for our new Education Exchange podcast released on the Education Next website every Monday at noon Eastern time.